Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zhou and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. This week's message is brought to us by our interim senior pastor, Abe Lee. He is preaching from the book of Jonah. So uh, I'll tell you, I had a lot of fun preparing for today's message, partially because I had a few extra weeks to prepare. Uh, and also partially because there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, material, resources, books, writings about today's uh, topic, Jonah. And I'm not going to make fun of our Jonah along the way, just so you know. So the Jonah I'm talking about will always be the Jonah from the Bible. Um, I did consider just reading this uh, book from the stage because it's a Pretty exciting story. There's anger, there's compassion, there's transformation, there's a big fish, there's a creepy worm. Uh, And just so you know, this is for the parents who are listening in. Um, There's a version of this story, Jonah, and it's pretty cool. I like it. It's called Man on the Run. It's by Tim Augustine. The children's ministry actually has a copy of the book right now. Um, If you look online for any book about Jonah, it's either going to be called Jonah and the Whale, Jonah and the Big Fish. There's always going to be a picture of a whale or a fish on it. But this particular version, the reason I like it, called Man on the Run, is because it understands that the story of Jonah is so much more than about a fish. The, the fish is not even remotely the point of the story. And that particular version of the book, it draws the reader back to the gospel, how the story of Jonah points to Christ and God's mercy. It's really good, and that's what we're going to look at today. And before we get too deep into the main themes of today's message I want to focus on, I think we kind of need to address the elephant or the, the big fish in the room, which is, did this really happen? Did, did Jonah really try to run away from God? Did he really get swallowed and then vomited out by a large fish? And did he really convert an entire city with five words. In English, it's, it's more. I think it's eight. Like it says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But in Hebrew, it's just five words. It's a, od arabim ve Nineveh ne peket. Five words. Potentially. Did it transform a city? And did a tree really grow up overnight and shade him and then die in a day? I don't know. Honestly, I, I honestly don't know. And I know it's kind of bad for a preacher to stand up behind this glass pulpit and say, I don't know. But it's the truth. I've read so many different commentaries, opinions, viewpoints regarding the historicity of Jonah. You know, I've read, you know, one opinion is that it should be read as didactic satire, which in other words, it means that it should be read like a story that uses humor and uses exaggeration of real things to teach a deeper truth. You know, reading it like a person telling a story, I, I, I was eaten by a fish this big or I was in a, preaching a city that was this big. You're just using that type of exaggeration as a tool. Or maybe it should be read as a historical account of things that really happened in Nineveh, this great Assyrian city. I'll tell you this, though. I do know that the Jews of the New Testament believed this to be a historical account. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus said this, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. They they believe that this was a real story. So I'll tell you, I I really am not sure. I don't know. And I don't think I'm alone in not knowing whether it's a real thing, is it an allegory, whatever. 
But here's what I can say with all confidence, that this story, whether it was, for example, written by Jonah or written by somebody else about Jonah, whether it was written as a historical account or an allegorical one, whatever, this story is not about Jonah. It's not about a big fish. It's not even about Nineveh. Regardless of his actual form, literary form, this story is intended to point us back to God and to give us a glimpse of who God is, his nature. And so I want to say this very clearly, okay? I believe that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. It reveals the truth and the very nature of God. The Bible is infallible. The Bible has complete authority in matters of faith and living out that faith. I believe the Bible uses all kinds of different forms as well, from poetry to history to allegory, satire. And the Bible is actively being used by God right now to bring people to salvation through faith alone in Christ alone, through all of these different literary forms. So I believe that also that my God is very big. He's a big God, strong, mighty, knowable, and still mysterious. So I I also know that it is possible, it is possible that God would have a fish swallow a man and keep him there for three days so that his son, Jesus Christ, might be able to use that as a reference later on. An example of what the cost of redemption would be. Uh, Jesus said it in uh, Matthew chapter 12 again, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of earth. I do believe it's possible that God would have used this. I believe it's possible that God would have an entire city turn by the utterance of five simple words from a recalcitrant miscreant or an uncooperative wretched person. It's possible that a boat full of hardened sailors, pagans, might worship a god after killing a man. I, 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 I don't know how, but I do believe that is, is within God's control. So whether this is a satirical or allegorical or metaphorical or historical story, I don't know. The point and the purpose of the story is absolutely the same. So instead of debating the evidence around that possibility, which we could do, I, I, I want to spend this morning just focusing on what it is that Jonah learned uh, and what it is that we can learn from Jonah. And the first lesson is this. It's going to be a simple one. God's love is so much better than mine. And, and I know it's a very obvious statement, so I'm going to ask you to hear me out for a moment. For those of you who uh, uh, don't know, I'm Korean-American. I was born and raised in Chicago. Uh, and so I don't have a lot of experience when it came to World War II. I'm too young for that um, during the Japanese occupation. But I had, well, I had, past tense, I had a hatred. And I know it's a strong word. It's an intentional use of the word. But I had a hatred for the Japanese for a really long time because of that war. See, my aunt on my mom's side, uh, she was taken uh, to be a comfort woman or a sex slave by a Japanese soldier at gunpoint from my grandfather. It was during the war. After the war, my grandfather's heart continued to be broken at the loss of his daughter. Uh, he's something he never got over. My uncle, as soon as he was able to, he started working for a construction company that was based in Japan so that he could search for his sister. 
He even learned to speak Japanese specifically so he could look for his lost sister. And I'll tell you, because of that personal story, because of that history in my family, my hatred and my anger against this group of people, it had no grace. It had no mercy. So when I read this story from Jonah, it resonates with me because I understand what Jonah's feeling. I understand Jonah hated the Ninevites. Really, all of Israel did, and they did for a really good reason. Because if you look, archaeologists, when they did some uh, in, in digging and searching, they found a number of ancient reliefs and paintings that depicted the cruelty of the Assyrians, which Nineveh was one of the largest cities of, of Nineveh. And the drawings, if you look at them, they're very hard to stomach. See, the Assyrians and the Ninevites, they were absolutely ruthless. If you read through the descriptions, you look at those ancient drawings, you will come to the understanding that beheading was the nicest thing that they could have done because at least the pain of their captives would have ended. See, the Assyrians, again, which would have included the Ninevites, the Assyrians were known to do things like they would impale people alive. And while that pole is impaling them, just put them around the city so they would be seen by all. They would regularly skin people alive again, then burn them and dismember them. There's one image that was found of an Assyrian king. He was holding a person's head still with a hook through the person's lip, and you could see them uh, blinding them with a sharp stick. There's another uh, relief where they had people lined up as uh, the Assyrians were tearing tongues out of their mouths. So God calling on Jonah and saying, hey, go to Nineveh. Tell them about me. That would have been like, honestly, in my mind, God asking me to go to Japan in 1940 and sharing the gospel. And Jonah ran away, not because he was afraid, but because he he didn't want the inevitable to happen. He didn't want to give them a chance to experience God's grace or God's love. If you look at chapter 4, verse 2, the second half of it, it says specifically that that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew, he knew that God is a God absolutely that can and that will redeem. Jonah knew God is a God that can and will transform. God is a God that abounds in love, in in chesed. So Jonah was taking the very description of God in this. This is the description that God had given himself uh, from Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34. This is when he had given Moses the second set of tablets of the Ten Commandments. Jonah was taking God's description of his own, of God's own great mercy and his love, and he turned it from a positive to a negative because he didn't want, he wanted none of that hope for the Assyrians he wanted God to bring down fire from heaven. He wanted God to smote the Ninevites. He, and, I, and I get that. I would have wanted none of it for the people that stole my aunt from my grandfather. But God wanted and wants to love them. Because God's love is so much better than mine. And as I thought about this, here's a question I have for you, a question I have for myself. Is there a group any group, liberals, conservatives, evangelicals, maybe the vaccinated people or the anti-vaxxers. Is there a particular group where you, where you 
may not feel hatred for, but you would feel no loss if they were never part of your spiritual family. Maybe, maybe there's a coworker uh, or even a family member, someone where there would be no love loss between you and them if you were separated for eternity. The, the level of animosity, the acrimony, it doesn't need to rise to the same level that Jonah had or that I had. But is there someone that might have wronged you or maybe just annoyed you such that if you saw them transformed by God, it would make you pause? It would make you say, really? I'm going to spend eternity with that person? That person who hurt me? That person who harmed me? That abused me? That traumatized me? That person found Jesus and is going to be in heaven with me? Because God wants to love them too. And God's love is so much better than mine. The grace that Jonah received after running away from God, after almost dying, being miraculously saved, seeing God's work through him to transform a city of the most evil nation known to man at the time, this grace that brought Jonah so much joy, it brought Jonah anger when he saw it applied to other people. But God's love is so much better than mine. Thank God it is. If this applies to you, I'm not saying it does, but if this applies to you, I'm going to leave you with the same question that God left with Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? Is it right for you to have such a hatred, such an ambivalence towards a people group, a person, someone created in the image of God that you'd rather see them burn in hell than become part of your family in heaven? That's the first lesson I think I can glean from this. The second one is this, uh, from Jonah's story, is that God's love is not, only, is not only based on experience. It is based on some experience, but not only on experience. See, if we think about this, Jonah was a prophet, right? And Jonah was a prophet, and we can see his story. It's in 2 Kings a bit more. Uh, there you see that he spoke the word of the Lord, right? He spoke to King Jeroboam II. And by the way, King Jeroboam was a nasty king. But the, and the prophecy that, that Jeroboam would receive from uh, Jonah was that the land would increase. It's something that Amos later prophesied would be reversed because Jeroboam was so nasty. But, but Jonah was still a prophet. And, and, and even though what he spoke was the opposite of what Amos ultimately spoke as well, he was still speaking the word of the Lord. And the land did increase. So Jonah was someone, as a prophet, who had clout. He was considered a mouthpiece of God. But that was his past. In this book, it starts with Jonah, again, hearing from God. God is speaking directly to him and saying, this is my word. And so we have a guy who's not only served God in the past, we have a person who's experienced a sweet fellowship with God now, being able to serve him, being blessed by it. But that became his past. And if we, even if we look at and consider the story as a whole and Jonah as a whole, we can see that he wasn't actually alone. He wasn't necessarily alone as a prophet. He was, he was probably a part of a fellowship of prophets. He was uh, maybe one of the, in 2 Kings chapter 2, it talks about sons of the prophets. Some believe that he was one of them because that's when Jonah would have been a, a teenager. So something that is possible that Jonah actually served under and studied under Elijah and Elisha. So he would be, had been exposed to a community of like-minded followers of God, all being trained up to hear from God, to obey God. 
But that was his past. And in spite of his amazing past, in spite of the experience that he had, Jonah was still a man who ran, who stumbled. He was still a man who forgot. See, the past experience, the, the, those privileges he had, the, the advantages he had, his, his history of obedience, even all the years of spiritual fruit that he experienced, these things, these experiences were not and are not a replacement for the present obedience that God had called him to and that God is calling us to. God's love is not only based on experience. God's active love in our lives and through our lives is informed by the experiences of our past and it includes the decisions of our present. We have a a lot of folks who are in the medical field in our church, so I think you'll appreciate this analogy. I'm diabetic. I mean, they're not going to appreciate that I'm diabetic, but anyway, you can understand this. I, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes when I was 25 years old. This is a while ago. I lost a lot of weight, and the diabetes went away for a minute, but unfortunately, it's come back. But that's not the point of the story. What I want to talk about was this. When I was living in California in San Francisco, I found a, an amazing uh, diabetes clinic that I was a part of, and they helped me with this issue and deal with it. And one of the things that I appreciated so much about the nurses, the doctors, and the, the dietitians at this clinic was that they, they never stopped learning. They didn't rest on their past or their experience. They kept moving forward. Every time I would go in, they would share the newest findings. They would modify my treatment plan based on new research because they never stopped moving forward. Never stopped for my sake, nor for the sake of for the sake of all the other patients. They were always looking for ways to help me in my battle. They never rested on the experiences of their past. Their experience absolutely informed their present, but they never lived in the past because the team, my team, never wanted to live on the memories of my past. So for the second lesson, the question I have for you is this: Are you leaning on your spiritual history? instead of running to the Spirit of God now? Are you replacing your past experiences, your past spiritual record? Are you replacing it for God's call right now to a present-day submission to His will? Are you stopping yourself from fully experiencing God's love by basing it on your past experience? There's another aspect of this idea that God's love is not only based on experience that I want to take a moment to consider. And I want to read to you from chapter 1, verse 3. And this is something I noticed as I was reading this. It says there, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went down into it, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. That name Tarshish is weird. I feel like I'm talking with a lisp when I read it. Um, But I want to ask you the question, if you think about this, have you ever had a situation where you thought, oh, this opportunity that's right in front of me right now, uh, this must be from God. So that must mean I should grab it as a sign from God. But then after you follow through, it turned out maybe not so much. It wasn't necessarily God opening that door. It was a little bit of a misinterpretation on your part. If we look at this, here's Jonah. He's, he's running away from God's direct command. God says, arise, go to Nineveh. And he runs in the exact opposite direction. 
He runs in the exact opposite direction. And as he's running, what does he do? But he comes upon a boat also going in that opposite direction. And so, and, and he's got money to pay for the fare. So he's thinking, oh, I've got money to ride this boat that's going in the opposite direction of where God originally commanded me. So this must be God's modified will. He must want me to not really go to Nineveh. So maybe I misunderstood God. So let's just get on this boat and go in the opposite direction. It wasn't luck. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't anything like that. Because if you look at it, Jonah's decision absolutely has some dire consequences. You see it in chapter 2. The boat goes through a major storm. He gets thrown overboard. He's eaten by a fish. Nothing good comes of his decision to get on that boat. God's love is not only based on experiences. As I said earlier, we can't rest on our past experiences. We have to move forward. At the same time, we cannot assume all of our present experiences and opportunities are God's confirmation either. Not everything that crosses your path is a sign from God that this is what you are supposed to be doing. Especially when that thing happens to be morally questionable. When I say that God's love is not based on experience alone, I mean that experiences are important. But we're called to live our lives based on what is provided to us in Scripture first. See, the Word of God is intended to be a lamp to our feet. The Word of God is a light to our path. And the Word of God is how I will know the love of God. There's a Scottish pastor, his name's uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he's a professor, and he said it like this, which I think is a much better way of saying what I'm trying to say. He says, do not be guided by providence when you are refusing to be guided by God's word. There's a, another theologian, his name's Charles Spurgeon. Um, he would often tell a story about a friend of his who had a really nasty temper, and every time uh, he got angry, he would end up throwing something. And Spurgeon would say that the fact that his friend would always throw something when he got angry didn't surprise him, nor uh, that his friend had a nasty temper. That didn't surprise him either. He would joke and say, it's surprising how whenever his friend got angry, there was always something to throw. Um, <clears throat> and it's supposed to be a bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek you know, example of how we, in our heart's desire to run away from God, to go in the opposite direction of where God is calling us to, how, how we often think that those opportunities, those, those things that are there for us to throw, how those are given to us so that we can go in that opposite direction. These, gotta be, these have to be God's will, God's providence. This, that's really what God wants me to do. He wants me to throw these things. That's not right. Because they're, they're not intended to be excuses. They're tests. A few weeks back, um, a few folks gathered at our home to talk about becoming members of the Church of the Beloved, and hopefully we'll be inducting them actually in a couple weeks. Um, And if you're interested, by the way, in becoming a new member, uh, we have enough folks interested now that we're probably going to have a a session in uh, early September. Uh, So if you're interested, please just email me, email info. Um, Anyway, we're going to... build a new rhythm to get those classes regularly scheduled. But we talked about our core values as a church and how as a church we want to be gospel-centered. We want to be dependent on prayer. We want to be worshiping passionately. We want to live missionally. We want to very intentionally live together life 
as a family, a body united together because of Christ alone. And there was a question that was asked. It's a great question. Simply, do we? Do these things describe who we are as a church? <laughs> it's like, wow, it's great. Um, and my response was, and my response is this. Not yet. These are not descriptors of who we are. They are aspirations of who God has called us as a church to be. To be gospel-centered, to be dependent on prayer, to be ones who worship passionately, to be committed to this family of believers. But often, we grasp those little roadblocks, those opportunities that pop up, and we cling to those as excuses instead of tests to draw us near to God. You know, things like, oh, and I, I don't mean to throw shade on anyone, but, you know, things like, oh, I have a huge thing that I have to take care of, so I, I can't spend time with my small group or my community. Or, or I, I have so much stuff to pray about that I just need more time to pray, so I can't join you for prayer right now. Or I have this horrible, I have a horrible singing voice, so I just don't want to make that person next to me suffer. So I, I, I'll, I'll skip that. I get it. But God's love is not only based on experience. Experience, whether it's from the past or something that we are, we're dealing with right now, experience is only a part of the picture that allows us to fully comprehend, to fully grasp the mercy and the grace of God's chesed, of his steadfast love, his love that never ceases, that never comes to an end. So the second point is don't lean on the past. Don't misinterpret the present because we're given scripture, we're given the word of God, along with experiences, along with family, along with church, along with small group. We're given all of these things together to help us live lives that allows us to enjoy this amazing truth that God is a gracious God, that God is a merciful God. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The last lesson that I want to point to uh, to focus on for today is this. God's love in my life, in your life, it's not dependent on my repentance. Let me explain. See, see his, his love is for me, absolutely, but it's not about me because I don't come first. He loved and he loves first. He loved me first and he instills in me as a result of faithfulness as a result of that, and then my repentance comes as a result of my faith in God's love. I'm going to read again that passage that Kirsty read for us from chapter 3, verse 6 to 9. It says this, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. 
A lot of us here who are listening have a very Western mindset, including myself. We come from a very Western culture, and we believe that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, right? We can do it all on our own. It's, it's all about me. It's all what I can do. And so, so we all often think that for redemption to come, it's me first. I need to repent. That repentance is experienced before faith. That repentance leads to faith. But it's actually the other way around. It's faith that leads to repentance. In verses 6 to 9, the king calls his city to action because, because there's this mustard seed, this tiny inkling of hope, of faith, that God would potentially be gracious enough to relent from his fierce anger. It wasn't a mature faith, that's for sure. It wasn't a strong faith. It wasn't a full assurance of faith that we are promised by Christ through his redemptive act on the cross for us. But it was a faith. It was a faith in a good God that led to a turning away from sin. God's love in my life, God's love in your life is not dependent on my Repentance is already there. Being able to fully experience God's love in our lives is dependent on, 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 on my, on your acting out on that little seed of hope, that mustard seed of faith in a God who is gracious, who is merciful, who is loving, and is wanting me and choosing you. Absolutely. This faith, though, is what's planted in you by our good, good Father. And it grows into a heart of repentance. This biblical combination of faith then repentance is at the heart of a correct understanding of God and his nature. We're called to turn away from our brokenness, to run from our self-centeredness, our sinfulness, our arrogance by reaching out for his grace by faith, by realizing his unrelenting mercy, by clinging to his promised chesed, his steadfast love because of the faith that he has planted within us. See, the sailors in the boat in chapter 2, they had a mustard seed of faith. They believed that God might be merciful and let them survive the storm if they obeyed the command from that emissary of the Hebrew God. The, the, the people of Nineveh had an inkling of hope that God might relent if they turned away from their sin. And, and, and as a result, God did. Verse 10, it says very specifically, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster, of the disaster that he has said he would do to them. And he didn't do it. I'll say there are probably some here, maybe, that have not fully embraced the, the promise of redemption. The promise of redemption that Jesus' death and his resurrection on the cross are purchased for each of us. But there's maybe a tiny spark of hope that maybe it's true. Maybe that is true. And if that's you, and there's a part of you that wants to cling to this truth, but you just can't overcome the doubts, then I ask you to consider this. Consider the Father in the New Testament who came to Jesus and cried out, I do believe, but help my unbelief. That mustard seed of faith, that tiny bit of hope, clinging to that, acting on that little hope, it will, I promise you, it will allow you to start a journey with Jesus that will result in God's mercy and God's grace in your life. For those of you who are already part of the body of Christ, but you're struggling, struggling today, whether it's struggling through the trauma of past hurts, whether it's struggling with your desire to turn away from 
past or current sin, whatever that might be for you, this truth applies to you as well. You may not have a mature faith yet. You may not have a strong faith. That's okay. You may not have the full assurance of faith yet. I ask you to grasp that mustard seed of faith, of hope that you have now. Cling to it. Cling to the promise that Jesus made, which is this. He promised to replace your burden with his much lighter one. He promised the Holy Spirit to come into your life, the helper and the comforter, so that he might walk with you and help draw near to God. I'll tell you, there, there are so many lessons in this story, this potentially either biographical or autobiographical account of Jonah's encounter in Nineveh. There's undertones of social justice in here. There's, there's uh, indications of God's redemptive love for the sojourner and the foreigner. And I urge you, if you can, dive deeper into it yourself. This, maybe in your small groups this weekend, if you're not part of a small group, uh, if you reach out to Opal, opal at cotb.life, she, uh, our small group coordinator can get you connected to one. Um, but at this point, I'm going to go ahead and ask the band to come up. I want to finish off today by ending with that story about my aunt. My aunt died uh, giving birth to a second child who did not survive. Um, we found out that the second child existed and didn't survive because her first son did. And my uncle and my cousin found each other in Japan. Both of them had been looking for each other the whole time because they had hope. They acted because of their mustard seed of faith that there was somebody out there. They acted on that hope. My uncle brought my cousin uh, to Korea to meet my grandfather, his grandfather. The joy they experienced was unbelievable, indescribable. Because my grandfather also had a tiny bit of hope, an inkling of hope, a mustard seed of faith, and he never gave up. He held on to life in the hope that he would one day find his daughter. And once he met his daughter's son, my granddad, he uh, passed away soon after that. He went home to his father, content, because he had faith. God's love is so much better than mine. God's love is so much more than just experience. God's love is, is, is so not dependent on, on my repentance. God's love is experienced, though, in my life when I relent to that mustard seed of faith in a loving God. When we understand this, and when we realize the fullness of his promise, when, when, we, are, when we are reunited with our Father, who is seeking each and every one of us, at that point, we can rejoice, just like the sailors did, because he saves us, and we will know God's chesed his love for us at that point. Can we pray together? Thank you for tuning in to this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit our website at cotb.life. God bless and have a great week.